Okay, turn to Matthew chapter five, please. Matthew chapter five. I'm going to read it and then we'll pray. This is Matthew chapter five. This is verses 43 through verses 48. Before I do, let's just have a moment of silence to just reconnect, redirect our minds to God's presence. In this quiet place, I'm feeling the sense of being on holy ground again. This scripture and Jesus, your words are so world-altering and so powerful. And I do, I, in my body, I feel a sense of reverence and deep respect and kind of fear and trembling especially before this particular passage. I want us, Lord, to see what it means and I want you to touch our hearts with your words as you have for so many. Your words have the power and they have changed and altered the world. Lord, I know that men and women have defined their lives and their death in pursuit of you and what you have said here. Holy Spirit, please show us the the gravity and the power of this for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who come against you, who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you even have? Don't even extortioners do that? Tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your tribe, only your brothers, only the people that agree with you, only your echo chamber, what more are you doing than others? Don't even pagans, Gentiles, people who don't know God do that? Here it is. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, I hope you feel the weight of that. Um, This is a milestone as we've been sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to this sermon on the mountain. This is a big milestone culminating a major, major section of the the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It lends itself sort of like the the experience of climbing a mountain. Jesus comes on the scene in chapter four. He shows up in human history. Jesus lands and he says to the world, follow me, repent, repent. Rethink, reorganize your life, reprioritize how you think and how you act because I'm here, the kingdom of God is wrapped up in my presence, I'm here, I'm available, and I'm accessible, so therefore, rethink it all, everything you were holding with a closed fist, open it up and rethink and reprioritize and reorganize your life because of this reality that I'm bringing right now to you that you can breathe in and breathe out my presence in my kingdom. And from that invitation, a huge crowd of people joined him. They followed him. This is where we get to the first part of chapter five. And in this crowd, we've got the, it starts out by, he labels them their poor. These are not the typical people that would follow a rabbi. These are people who are poor, Economically, yes, they are oppressed, they are exploited, they are under the thumb of a tyrannical government, they are, um, 
They are being conquered by a foreign power. They are slaves. They are being taxed. They are being oppressed. It is a, probably a situation the likes of which we here in America don't really, aren't able to grasp. We have to stretch our minds a little bit to be able to understand this level of slavery and oppression in your own land. Here they are. But they're also poor spiritually. They're poor in spirit. Meaning, quite frankly, they're the spiritual zeros. These are the ones that don't know the Bible. These are people that aren't going to synagogue. These are people that aren't like your spiritual type of people. These are people that are um, nominal at best. You know, we, we might call them at best Christmas and Easter type, type of believers. Just the surface. They don't know much. And Jesus says, hey, congratulations, Makarios. Blessed are you. Congratulations. You're in the right time at the right place. The kingdom of God is here for you. It's coming to you. These are the biblically illiterate, the disenfranchised, the losers. And he takes them on this journey towards this really big word, dikaiosune, which is righteousness. It's a word we don't really use here anymore. Um, but it means this wholeness or this rightness. It's a, it's a deep relational word in Matthew's lexicon that means a right relationship between you and God, a healthy relationship between you and God, and a healthy relationship between you and others, you and the people around you, even a healthy relationship or a right relationship between you and creation, you and the earth. You are basically, you are right, you are whole. There's a completeness that's available to you. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to take you on a journey from this valley of poor in spirit through this formation camp or this discipleship apprenticeship journey with me towards dikaiosune, towards righteousness. I'm here to show you what it means to be a different kind of human being. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's a manifesto of what it means to follow Jesus and who we're being formed into and the kind of humans we're being formed into. And so what does he do? He goes after all the things that in Jesus' mind um, is coming against dikaiosune in the world, rightness in the world. He faces what's the root, and not just the behavioral stuff, but the root stuff. The, the, he does this kind of diagnosis of the human condition, of what's in the heart What's deep in the habits? What's in the character? What is this, this disease in us that gives us these certain bents? We're born with these bents towards unrighteousness, towards destruction, towards manipulation, towards self-preservation, towards fear, time, towards fight or flight. And so Jesus turns our heads towards these heart issues as we're climbing up this mountain. He says, look at that. There's anger. You've heard it said, behaviorally, don't murder somebody. I'm telling you what's behind that. Let me pull back the curtain. Is this anger, this animosity, this hatred, this rage. That's what's going on in there. Now, look as we're traveling with Jesus up the mountain, look over here. You'll see lust. Using someone else's body someone else, or their image to fulfill our Cravings, our sexual cravings. There's lust and exploitation. And look over here, look how that disintegrates the home. There's this dynamic in a marriage, anger and lust that breaks down a marriage to where it, it you know, divorce is a death of a marriage. And look over here, he would say, truth. Dis there's honesty, dishonesty, that whole play in the human soul. Why do we hide why do we embellish? Why do we, why do we minimize? Why do we exaggerate? Why do we do those things? Where it, it goes back to the garden of Adam and Eve hiding. I, I see your eyes, were, you were walking in the garden, your eyes would see my nakedness, so I hid, I, I extorted, I, I, I amplified, I minimized, I, I hid. Look up here. We've got this vengeance, this retaliation, Jesus, as we're hiking up. That vi we think that violence will fix violence. And here we are at, the, at kind of a ledge point where we can see this beautiful valley. We've climbed up and Jesus says, 
at the end of it. We started at poor in spirit, and at the end he says, so therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you see the progression where we've gone? We've gone from this poor in spirit space. And it's not that we ever necessarily leave being poor in spirit. In fact, um, there's a great argument. Um, uh, one of my favorite scholars on Matthew talks about how the way to go up the mountain is actually to go back to the Beatitudes, go back to the, the lessings of the valley. We get to being perfect by knowing that we're poor in spirit. We, we kind of ascend by going, we go, the way forward is kind of the way back, realizing we don't wanna, we wanna be poor in spirit, it's good. But he's bringing us somewhere. He's bringing us somewhere. And here we are to the peak of this mountain. And what is, what is he saying? He's, he's painting this portrait of a disciple. Or, he, or let me not use Christian speak. He's, por- he's painting a portrait of a human, the way a human was intended to be. He's painting this portrait of the, what God intended you and I to be. People that instead, at our, again, at a heart level, not behaviorally, please, not just behaviorally, but at a heart level, people who are patient, not angry. <clears throat> people who give, not take. People who come up with surprising and creative ways to confront evil rather than fleeing from it or fighting it. They, they confront it in a creative, surprising way with goodwill towards, even towards the person that's slapping them or suing them or whatever that might be who don't have anything to hide, so they're honest through and through. And at the end here, what does he say? What is the end goal? It's love. That you would have a boundary-breaking love, that you would be people marked by a love that has no boundaries. Even your enemies, you love. You see what Jesus is doing? He's painting a picture, he's giving us an imagination. When we started this series on the Sermon on the Mount, several of you with me prayed, especially in my home group, prayed that God would give us an imagination for, what it, for what, the kind of human he wants us to be. And we had some creative ways of looking at it. We would say, what would Jesus be like if he were Josh? Not that Josh is is to be Jesus. No, what would Jesus, how would Jesus live Josh's life with his circumstances, his family, his personality, his choices? The same situation, not lifting him out of that life, but how would Jesus incarnate and be Josh? How would Jesus be Nathan? How would Jesus be Audrey? How would Jesus be, you know, the Andersons? How would Jesus be the Norris? How would Jesus be Mike? In Mike's situation, that's another way of saying, God, give me an imagination of what it looks like for Mike to follow you with my personality, my bents, my quirks, my proclivities, my habits, all of that. What does it look like? And here he's been doing that. Mike, look, there's anger in your soul. Mike, there's, and we climb up and now, Mike, I want you to be a person marked by love, a, a, a generous kind, open-handed, wonderful, boundary-breaking love that knows no bounds. That's what I'm, that is my highest priority for you. This is the stuff of God. This is the stuff that is the heartbeat of God at the center of the universe, okay? That's where we're at. Are are your noses starting to bleed a little bit? (laughs) That's where we've come. Okay, let's see how he gets there. This is really interesting he starts out with this. He, this is the final time that he's going to give this kind of rabbinic uh, verbal, um, verbal formula. You have heard that it has been said. You have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. First of all, um, he's, we told you that, or we've, we've said that when a rabbi said this, you've heard that it is said, he's quoting from somewhere in the Old Testament. And the best thing that we need to do as disciples is when there's a quote from somewhere in the Old Testament, what do we do? We look it up. We go back and read it, right? And here, so this is from Leviticus chapter 19. I want you to turn there with me. Let's go, let's do this exercise together this morning. Leviticus chapter 19, this is in the Pentateuch the first five books of your Bible, right before you get to Numbers. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. (coughs) 
This is Exodus 19, verse 18. Leviticus. Did I say Exodus? Oops. Can I get another cup of coffee? I'm just kidding. You have heard, this is verse, uh, Leviticus 18, uh, 19, 18. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. That's where he's getting this quote. What's missing there? What? The enemies. Yeah, it's not there. And you will search the entire Old Testament and you will find, you will not find this. There is no place. In fact, no one in history has, set, has taken it this far. Okay? And that, um, and here's the, here's the, here's where we're getting this. Jesus did not, it's in kind of his formula. What did he not say? He didn't say, you have, you have read in the scriptures, it is said. Or you have read in the Bible. He said, you have heard that it has been said. In other words, Jesus is, is cueing us to a raging debate in his day based on or from Leviticus chapter 19. Um, Israel at this point has been oppressed for three times as long as America has been a country. 600 years they've been oppressed by foreign powers. And they come to this verse. And so this is not just theology for them. This is not um, like some like interesting but pointless debate. This is real. From Leviticus 19, it says, love your neighbor. And so the, the, nat- the natural question is what? Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? If I've got to love somebody, who is it? Is it the Roman soldier? Is that my neighbor? Is it the tax collector that just slapped me across the face? Is that my neighbor? Is it the Babylonians? I'm living in their land. Is it the Babylon? Is that my neighbor? Before them, was it the Assyrians? Was it the Persians? Was it the Greeks? Is it the Romans? This is the context of Israel's mind. They're, they're like, wait a second, we're called to love, but who exactly are we called to love? And there was this raging debate in Jesus' day. There were some that read this verse um, and based on, well, let me just read this to you. Look at verse 13. Let me see if you can see this. He said, in verse 13, he says, you shall not oppress your neighbor, there's our word, or rob him. The wagers of hired worker shall not remain with you all, uh, all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the, poor or, or, um, to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among, here's a key word, your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of people in your community. I am the Lord. Who's neighbor there? Who's your people? Jews, yeah, Israelites, yeah. So Jesus is, and Jesus, he's an Israelite and he's speaking at, on this hill to this crowd. He's talking to Israelites, right? And so there was this, based on these verses, there was a camp of folks that said, neighbor is, is my nation. It's only my people. And so I'm gonna love my neighbor, but I'm not gonna love the Samaritan, I'm not going to love the tax collector who betrayed us to these Roman, to this Roman oppressors. I'm not going to love the Romans. I am loving my neighbor. It's just, it's is fellow Israelites. That's who I'm naming. That's who I'm loving. But then there was others, and I think Jesus was probably in this camp, that also they, they kept reading. They, you know, you, they looked at the whole context. Look down at verse 33. And here we've got an issue. When a stranger, that's an immigrant, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger or the immigrant who sojourns with you as, the native among, as a native among you. In other words, you shall treat him as one of you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you are also strangers in the land of Egypt, <clears throat> and I am the Lord your God. 
Same with the last part. He caps it off with, I am the Lord. That's this is who I am. That's a, a statement. That's like a stamp of authority. So I have said. It's like what a king would say to say, let it be so. This is it. So there was another camp in Jesus' day that were saying, okay, but neighbors are also immigrants. <clears throat> and we find the poor in here. Excuse me. <clears throat> we find the poor. We find, uh, there's also some beautiful laws in here where, where in this chapter where God will say, hey, only when it's harvest time, only harvest your field once. Leave the leftovers and the scraps and even the sides of your field for people who who are poor, who, can't, who don't have their own fields, who don't own their own land. And it is lawful for them to come and pick up the leftovers. Don't go over it twice. Can you imagine that here in America? We're all about production and extracting every piece. But this is a beautiful law, way ahead of its time. So there's this generosity from God here. So, there's, so not, we, not only do we have the people, your own people, but also strangers People that would maybe flee from other oppressive countries and come into Israel and want a life of blessing. God says, yes, treat them like, like there's no distinction. Treat them like one of you. But then Jesus takes it even further. Because that leaves a question still. What, does that include the Roman that puts his pack down in front of you and takes out his sword and says, carry this another mile? Is that what it means? Or the tax collector? Jesus takes this even further than anybody's ever taken it before. He says, but I say to you, love even your enemies. You guys, I cannot overstate how the world was altered when Jesus spoke these words. No one has ever said anything before like this. This was a historic moment. People had said before, love only your own people. And people had said before, love even maybe some strangers. But Jesus said, and love people who don't like you and you don't like them either. I just want, I'm pausing so that you can, because I know if, you, if I wait long enough, maybe some faces will start popping up in your mind. People that you don't like, and by the way, probably can't stand you either. That's what he's talking about. And this is um, probably one of, you know, we, um, if you thought last week's was challenging, this is, probably some, this is probably some of the most challenging words that Jesus has ever said, if you, think, if you think this through. To love. Jesus takes us beyond this, and he includes enemies under the, this umbrella term as neighbor. I want you to see people from outside of your tribe that don't think like you, that don't see the world the way you see the world, that disagree with you, and, and, and he says that persecute you. In other words, not only are they neutrally, they, they just not disagree with you, they actually come against you. They're actually trying to make your life worse. He leaves no stone unturned here. He says, even them, he doesn't say, I want you to like them. He says, I want you to he takes it further. Love them. It's the word agape in the Greek. The word love in the English is a pretty useless word, I think, because we use it for, you know, I can say I love coffee, because I do. And then I can say I love my wife. Same word, but do I mean the same thing? No, no. Um, so we have one, in the Greek, it's a lot more specific. There's a lot of words to, to kind of get at different angles of love. And this is the word agape, and it means a mindset, it means an attitude, and it means an action towards someone else. A mindset, I'm going to think about you in a certain way. You are an image of God. I'm going to have an attitude towards you, a disposition or a stance towards you of generosity, kindness, openness and love and then I'm going to act according to how I think about you you see how hard this is especially in our world today especially in a place like especially being Christians in Seattle we feel a lot of tension in our world because we feel um, we're famous here in Seattle for our passive aggressiveness in New York maybe we would have some actual aggression in New York people they uh, say what they think right there on the spot and they say it loudly and they add a few colorful words in the middle of it to, get, to just add some extra stank to it 
to get it across. Here, it's a mood or it's just silence or it's a deadpan face and a nod. Or you can't tell, are they agreeing or not? Are we on the same page or not? It's just this, mm. right? And it's every, it's every bit of aggressive. It's just passive aggressive. It's a hard place. And what is our typical, this is natural. It's, it's natural for human beings. And Jesus is giving a nod to human nature here. He's saying it's natural for human beings to love the people that, they, that, that agree with them, to love their own tribe. And therefore, the other side of that coin is to hate people that are outside of that tribe. Like, it's, uh, it's, if I'm going to swear loyalty to, to Nathan as my friend, then naturally, if I'm loyal to Nathan, I'm going to be disloyal to his enemies. I'm going to come against his enemies because I'm his friend. It's just a, a natural thing. Jesus is nodding to that, but he's saying, I'm asking you to do something supernatural, Nat unnatural. I'm asking you to love even your enemies, the people that don't agree with you. This is something that's really hard and dare say something that most of us, I think, are failing at. I don't think I need to know even many of you personally to know that we're probably all failing at this, especially in a hostile place, because we want to resolve tension. This is very natural for humans to do. We, if we feel tension, we will resolve either by vilifying that other person or capitulating, right? It's that dagger balance of truth versus love. We'll either major on the truth and come against them and disassociate, or we will just say, oh, I just agree. With, we'll take out any orthodoxy whatsoever and say, I just, you know, every, all paths lead to heaven. All paths lead to God. There are, you know, what's right for you is right for you. What's wrong for you is wrong for you. And, and it's not the same for me. Kind of this, it, what are we doing there? It's actually a defense mechanism. We're, we're resolving this tension that we feel. Jesus is offering a way to stay in this tension. To say we're going to love and love does not mean we agree with. Love does not mean we condone. Love does not mean we see things the same way. Love means unresolved and staying there in love. Don't Pull the eject button. Don't leave and go to, and, you know, take up arms and go to Texas. That's, he's saying, no, no, stay. <laughs> Selfishly, I'm saying this to you. Stay with us, please. Stay. I know it's hard. Don't leave. Stay. Stay and, and or, or it might not be your city. It just might be a relationship. It might be friendships. Yeah, Christians pursue, followers of Christ pursue and love even in the midst of unresolve. Now, where is Jesus getting this? Where is he getting this information? Well, he tells us, and this is just so profound. Oh, I better go back to the passage. Um, one is from the weather. He gets this from, from observing the weather. Look what he says. He says, um, for, because... God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This to me is very profound because it gets into Jesus's way of viewing God. Jesus is opening up his mind and giving us his perspective on how he perceives God the Father. Somewhere along the way in Jesus's formation, he noticed some things that formed the reality of his perception of his heavenly father. He was walking, I would imagine, noticing. I'm gonna get back to why I'm emphasizing that in a second. He was imagining and noticing, and he, maybe he walked by a farm and saw that, oh, wow, this person's a good, honest person, and their crops are flourishing. The rain has come. These olives are beautiful. And then he walked around the corner and he saw a neighbor that he knew was corrupt, didn't pay the workers fairly, was a, was a horrible person, and they also have a flourishing yard. And, and Jesus noticed something. He noticed, okay, it's what horrible theology is it to say that, to walk by and go, oh, God must love you. You're a friend of God. And then see someone's garden, you know, riddled with blight or something and says oh God doesn't like you Jesus is saying no 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 by observation I can see that God they bo both get the same weather this is God think of this 
I don't think anybody here, well, if, I, I, well in my opinion, and we can still be friends because I love you even though you're wrong, uh, the Seattle area is, I think, one of the most beautiful places to be in, to live. It is just gorgeous, especially in spring when we have a spring. Spring, this city blooms. I had the um, privilege at one point, someone um, wanted me to go to this conference and they were wealthy enough to let me have a, a float plane ride to this conference. And we left from Lake Washington and it was this beautiful spring day and we came up out of it. And I remember I looked down and I, me and the handful of guys that were with me, we looked down and we just gasped and said, Seattle is beautiful. It's a beautiful place. The cherry blossoms were, were, were touches of them everywhere. Mount Rainier was out. The air was clean. There was the sound. There was the lakes. There was the mountains we could see. It was just like, wow, this place is gorgeous. God does that every day. Now, if, if, we could, if I could make something like that, if I could produce something like that, I would put a little stamp if I was God, I would like made in heaven. You know, I would, I would make sure. God just gives it to a city that does not like him, to a city who comes against him, to a city who explains him away, to a city that belittles his children, to a city he just, look at, Jesus is just observing this. Look, God just gives, even to people that, He's not necessarily condoning their practices. He knows what they're doing. Think about God's mind. He knows what every person is doing. Think of what people are doing behind closed doors in the city. Think of the ways that they're hurting each other and hurting themselves. And yet God, they wake up every new morning to a fresh day, some rain, a lot of rain, a sunrise. They get to go and they get to eat good food I sometimes, when we're at a restaurant, I will look around and see all the families and people, and I wonder, do they realize that this is a gift from God? These tastes, the joy that they have, the camaraderie they have with each other. They're not Christians, but they're fully enjoying God's good world. And Jesus makes this observation. This is the God we serve, and he draws a straight line between the God of, that he is observing in creation and to his fault, to what it means to be a person in the kingdom of this same God. To be an open-handed, generous, kind person to people that don't see things even remotely the same way. Isn't it amazing? Think of the most uh, people that you can't understand the most. Perhaps uh, someone that has a homosexual lifestyle or a transgendered person or some, something that you just don't relate with at God. Gives them good things, loves them, sees them. Think of the homeless person on the street. You know, think, of, think of the homeless person begging for money that he's going to use for drugs later. Think of that. God was there when that young man was born. God, in fact, let's go back even further. Psalm 139, God formed that human in his mother's womb whether conceived in a Christian marriage or out of wedlock at some rave, it doesn't matter. God gives good. He's, he's shaping the human heart, the human soul. He rejoiced at that person's birth and he never walked away. Maybe his parents at some point said, that's it. You've stolen from us. You've, you've done all these things. That's it. I can't have you in my, and that's, I get it. Sometimes it's not safe. It may not even have animosity attached to it. It's just not safe. And yet God, he goes with that person, walks with them, talks to them. Yeah. And they all bear his image. Yeah. Not only that, he's put his stamp upon them. They're made in his own image. Even though he might not get a return on his investment. They may not ever come to know him. And yet he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. And Jesus has just 
see, he just sees this. You don't want to know why, I'm just going to take a side tangent here because I think it's important. You know, you want to know what allowed Jesus to see this? We talked about this in our home group. I thought it was so important that I should probably bring it up. He slowed down enough to notice. When was the last time you noticed the weather and, thought, and sat down and thought about it? He lived in a society that was slow, compared, certainly compared to us. He didn't have a computer in his pocket renewing information every second, pinging him with new things, pushing him along. He didn't live in a society of utilitarianism or just, and just the endless pursuit of materials and stuff and consumption that just pushes us, pushes us, pushes us and makes us forget. Jesus, there's a book, I have not read it, I wanna read it, it's on my list. There's a book called The Three Mile an Hour God and just the title alone has got me enough to wanna read it and it's talking about Jesus, we just need to remember Jesus walked everywhere he went. In the Bible, it says, you know, Jesus was in Caesarea, Philippi and then he went to Capernaum and then we just start reading the stuff he did in Capernaum and it feels kind of fast paced but you need to remember he's in Caesarea Philippi and he says let's go to Capernaum they packed up their stuff they went and bought food for the journey they probably said goodbye and made some arrangements and then they walked at about a three mile an hour pace and talked along the way stopped and maybe looked oh storm's coming set up a camp got underneath out of the rain or whatever they did, chopped firewood. Everything was slow. Everything was slower. So people were able to think, observe, watch. Um, The reason this stuck out to me is because this week we have been remodeling our bathroom and and doing other things around the house. We We have a break at school and so that means get some stuff done. And so it's been fast, fast. But I've gone to visit Hal, Henry, every day. And it's been this, this uh, collision of speed, 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 get this done, go to the store, get this done, diddle, 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 diddle. Henry. And you walk in and Henry is like, hi. Do you wanna go outside on the veranda and read the Bible? That would be great. And we go out there. Now, don't get me wrong, he's sharp. He's just slow. And he, we were talking about this. He actually helped me come to this conclusion. We, I, I was reading this with him. And he, he was saying, you know, I look at my slowness as a detriment. He goes, I used to be so fast. I used to just walk and go places. And the only thing I slowed down for was to eat. I just loved a good meal, you know. But I was fast, 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 fast. But now I'm slow. And I... We were talking about, okay, yeah, that's a bummer, but maybe in that bummer, there's also a blessing. Because I, t- I told him, I'll tell you what, Henry, I kind of admire. Right now, I would like to trade. Like, could you go to Home Depot and then to Ikea and then, and I could just stay here a bit, you know, and just, you know, let, or I always think that with our cat. Like, you know what I mean? You come home and it's a busy day and you come home at five and the cat like comes out from under the bed and is like, you know and you think to yourself man it, it would be kind of nice you know what day is it what time? but you know how beneficial would it be for us to slow down our inner world you have to do it we've got to be disciplined in a world like it's coming against it goes against like we have a the inertia of our world is just pushing us faster 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 what would it look like for us to build in some traditions some mechanisms some habits that we could slow down our inner world and have some peace think notice the weather wow how does this speak of god how does it not speak of god jesus was able to do that he also got his wisdom from the bible Jesus was formed, he grew up and was formed by the beautiful poetry of the Psalms. This informed how he thought about God. Let me read a few to you that just will give you an, an idea of where Jesus is getting his perception of his father. Let's see, this is, I'm gonna go to Psalm, Psalm 145 is a good one. Let me go there. 
He says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the next line is, the Lord is good to all. That's where Jesus is getting his info. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion over all that he has made. That's Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. It keeps going. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Listen to that. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling. Now look, you gotta be slow to sit. These are not, the Bible is not a book that was meant to be read once and then move on with your life. Jesus read this and he sat and thought about it. God is good in all his works. He's good to everyone. This is a good world. Jesus saw, when he looked at the world, he saw what Dallas Willard called a God-washed, God-saturated world. A world that got God hands, God's hand all over it. He, Jesus saw God in every smile, in every fragrance that, made him, that gave his heart joy. And every beautiful taste that made him come alive with his taste buds. When he gave his disciples a hug, when he kissed his mom, he saw God's presence in all of that. This is a God-washed, God-saturated world. You guys, we can't see that unless we slow down and have eyes to see it. And part of it, he read the Bible over and over and over again. And he thought about it. Then he read it. Then he thought about it. He talked about it. He fleshed out the implications why are we so biblically illiterate in our culture? I think part of it, maybe not all of it, part of it is because we're just moving so fast. And the Bible was meant to be, the, did you know the Bible is not an individual book? Most people are, are, were illiterate in Jesus. It, the Bible was read to people and then they talked about it and memorized it. As a family, they thought about it. They recited it. Then they talked, they had meals, like a catechism based on questions and answers where a kid would say dad why did we leave Egypt and the dad would say well because they were oppressing us and God sent Moses and they they just went over it over and over and over and over and over again and they talked about it on the way and when they went to bed and when they woke up it was it was slow and talked about and contemplated and beautiful and it formed the way Jesus thinks he says, the Lord is good to all. Jesus is saying, it's not just Israelites, not just immigrants, but the people that you hate and the people who hate you, that would be Romans, tax collectors, Samaritans, and so forth. The people that are out to get you, you're, this love that I am forming in you is gonna come to the point where you, it will have no bounds. And here's what he says, which is interesting. He says, and when you do this, you are then most like your father who is in heaven. So to Jesus, this is the character trait of the father. I don't think this is like um, entrance requirements into heaven. This is not, he's not saying love your enemies so that you can go to heaven. He's saying, he's saying this is what's gonna mark you as related to God the father. This is his most natural recognizable characteristic is his compassion and love. He is love. Love in the Bible primarily is a noun for God. He is love. Therefore, it's natural that he acts lovingly. So he's saying, look, I'm, turning, I'm not just saying go out and love. I'm saying I'm turning you into loving people where you're marked by this boundary-breaking love that just has no stipulations, cannot be stopped this generous, open-handed, loving generosity in a world like ours, you guys, and I would say even more so in our culture right now, our, our cultural moment, this stands out because we are all about our tribes right now. We're all about what camps we belong to and what tribes that we are in and what ideologies we agree with and the ones that don't, we don't associate with them and we block out these people and we accept these people and we surround ourselves with these people. We're more time than other and than I think ever before in my lifetime are we not having conversations more and more with people that disagree with us. We are isolating ourselves instead 
We have no capacity for a relationship that can hold. And enter a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, who can talk and love and um, not hate people that disagree with them, that can even be generous, that can help to care for people that disagree with them, that can not only sustain a relationship, but actually try to have a deeper relationship with people that, that, they, don't, that they normally wouldn't care for. This is, I think, the number one evangelistic tool of apprentices of Jesus. It's a character of love. To Jesus, God is fundamentally generous and radically gracious to everyone and is most, at his most basic level, at, a, at the kind of the, the DNA stuff of God, he is radically loving. He is love. And he got this from the weather and from scripture. What is love? We talked about this. This is agape love. It's an attitude, it's a mindset, and it's an action. This is God's, God's love towards the world. And we are to have that same towards others. And we will the more we interact with in, in the kingdom of God. We become naturally this way. Now, like I said, it's natural for humans to love those in their power, in their own tribe, and therefore to hate those that are without. We're very good at loving people. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, to love those that love you, don't even extortioners do that? Like, what, how does that make you stand out? Or to stay in your own tribe, or to greet people who would greet you back, to like people who like you. That is the most natural human thing. Don't even pagans do that. And that's not a derogatory term. He's just saying people that don't know God. Don't even irreligious people have that natural trait. They gravitate toward people that like them back. We tend to like people who like us, right? But he's saying here, um, when we become perfect or mature, that's what the word is. The word is teleos in the Greek. It's translated perfect here. But if you were to look in other places, almost every other place in the New Testament where this word teleos is translated, it has the idea of completion or maturing. Of a, you are becoming a complete human. And to Jesus, what it meant to be a complete human meant a person of love. Yeah. Misleading. Misleading. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. But I love them. Even though I disagree with them. Well, the English, a good English translation would be complete or mature. In fact, some of your translations will say perfectly mature. Because it's not just, um, it's not just, uh, maybe this is why. It's, so words have a, in Greek, have a, like all words, have a semantic range. And on the one hand, this word does not mean perfect in the sense that, um, well, it doesn't mean mature in the sense that you're maturing, even though it does, but it also, it, it, it doesn't mean, it means you're in process, but it means that you're also done. You're perfectly mature. You've reached the end. It's the pinnacle of what it means to be human. And so there's kind of this, should we, should we make it mature? Well, the word mature, we usually think of that as we're maturing, we're getting there. That wouldn't do this word justice. It's, it's like already but not yet. It's like already but not. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm taking you somewhere and there's a stopping point and the stopping point is love. And that's maturity. Okay? I'm maturing you. I'm developing you. I'm bringing you somewhere. And here is the goal. There, the peak up there in the clouds, love, that is where I'm bringing you. That is what maturity looks like. That is my, Jesus would say, this is my highest definition of human. When I think of the best human, I think of someone whose love is so powerful that it changes the world. And this is exactly what has happened, actually. The followers of Jesus that have dared to live this way have made, I think, the greatest impact on society. That we, we have historical figures that have dared to live a, a, a life of love that have made probably the biggest impact in our world and, unfortunately, have suffered the same fate as Jesus himself. I think, of course, we mentioned him last week, but of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King that are, I mean, here we are, think of this. Here we are in Seattle, and this area was so impacted by Dr. King that they named our county 
in the most secular area in our state. They named our county after a preacher. And Martin Luther King had his problems, like all disciples of Jesus do, by the way. And he was, he was trying to get at a, at a higher um, or at a different demographic than just Christians. So a lot of his most famous speeches don't have much about God in there, but make no mistake about it, they're all grounded in theology, especially if you read his letter from Birmingham Jail. You'll you'll see really quickly that this guy was a theologian. He wrote a letter to pastors who were criticizing his nonviolent protests. He he was in prison. He wrote a letter to to them on a napkin. He didn't have the internet. He didn't even have a Bible with him. But off his brain, you realize this man was a scholar. He knew the Bible and he knew theology. Here's what he says. Let me give you, uh, here's an excerpt. He says this, listen, the ultimate weakness of violent retaliation is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Think of that. He's just brilliant. The ultimate weakness of violent retaliation is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate, and so it goes, returning evil for evil, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. That changed the world. That changed the world. That's a common ground between you and our friends and our neighbors. Most people in this city will love Martin Luther King. And he died for it. How he is proof of an impact that we can have. And according to Jesus, this is the stuff of the heartbeat of God himself. This is the stuff of God. This love that Jesus would give, remember him on the cross. What, what What comes out of your mouth when you're stressed and persecuted? What comes just naturally vomiting out of your heart? Yeah, I just heard a, I just heard a, oh, you might have said some words, but I resonated with this. Oh man, you had to go there. That, it's me too. I can, I can, I mean, I can sit up here and act all holy and great at this church and as a pastor with my Bible and look, I'm leading these people, but I'll tell you what, I go home or I stub my toe or something doesn't work or something thwarts my will and out comes things like, Dah! and I snap and I, and I, okay, Jesus the ultimate pressure. He's not eaten. He's not slept. His own people have put a bag over his head and said, prophesy now. Who hit you? You know, uh, when you're watching football, you know what some of the greatest injuries are? The ones that they didn't see coming. The human body, when you see even a 250-pound guy coming at you, what, what do you do? Brace. But what do you do when you're running and you, don't, you think you're in the clear, you don't see anybody, and someone just trucks you? You weren't prepared to see it, it messes you up. That's what they were doing with Jesus. They put a bag over his face. He couldn't tell where the hits were coming from, and they just, boom, boom, they just messed him up. He was thirsty. He said so. I'm thirsty. On the cross, he said, I'm thirsty. He stood trial in front of the people that he came to love and they said, crucify him. Even even the enemy, Pontius Pilate, was confused by that. Why? Why? What wrong has he done? Crucify him. They even said, may his blood be upon us and our children, John says. John's gospel records that. A mob. Like, put it on our kids' account. Kill this guy. Hatred, the vitriol, and Jesus stood there. Pilate thought he could maybe assuage them just by 
beating Jesus up real good. So he had him scourged, whipped to the point. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, if you've watched The Passion of the Christ, for example. A cat of nine tails is a, a, a whip with nine strands that has all within the leather like broken glass and bone and shards and they would, they would stretch the person out so that their back was, the skin was nice and tight and they would lay it over them and whip it back so that it just filleted the skin wide open. When Jesus came back from that, the crowd was still there. Pilate has this famous line. He says, behold the man. You know what he was saying? He was saying, this is the same guy. They could not recognize that it was Jesus anymore. He was so jacked up. They ripped his beard out of his face. He carried his own cross. He gets to the top. He's nailed there. And what comes out of this man under that much pressure? What comes naturally? Just comes vomiting out of his soul. Father, forgive them. They don't. We're talking about a character. We're talking about the kind of person that would naturally return love for hate. Follow me, Jesus says. And there have been a few that have, there have been a few of the followers of Jesus that have took him up. They said, okay, I'll do it, like, like Dr. King and others, lots of others. We just, last week was um, the celebration of the death of Polycarp, which is this second century church father who knew the apostle John uh, personally, this incredible leader in uh, Egypt. And he died a martyr's death. He, they brought him, this beautiful, old, kind, just loving soul. They brought him to the Roman in, in a Colosseum, and they said, deny Christ or we'll, we'll feed you to the beasts. And he said, how can I deny someone who's been so good to me? And they said, we'll do it. And he said, well, then, he actually said, why are you hesitating? Said, if you're gonna do it, do it. So they tried a different tactic. Okay, deny him or we'll burn you alive. And they burned him alive. But he made such an impact. The church, the Fox's Book of Martyrs says the church has been, are like a garden that's been watered with the blood of the saints that have lived this life, that have changed the world. How did Christianity become what it is? The greatness of what it is that we can't feel because we're in this little bubble called Seattle. Most of the world is teen. We're talking about billions of people that follow Jesus Christ. It has ripped the, the Greco-Roman government in upside down. In a, in a span of like two to three hundred years, changed the world. How did it do it? Because of an intellectual belief only? No. Because people were going to camps and raising their hands to intellectually believe in Jesus so that they can go to that good place when they die? No. Because they lived a way. They followed Jesus and they said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. How can we not when we see that he's done that for us? I'm sorry, it's 1202. Let's stand up. Yeah, thank you. Let's pray. Father, you are so powerful. And Lord, this is so pertinent for us because we live in a land of neighbors who you are calling, well, of enemies that you are calling our neighbors. We live in a land of people that you love. I think of that wonderful church on the side of I-5 that's with that beautiful banner that says, proclaims boldly and, and um, unashamedly, Jesus loves Seattle. What a beautiful message. God bless that church. What a great, simple, and powerful message. Jesus loves Seattle, a people who will not love him back. But Lord, may, that, may we become living banners of that. May people through our acquaintance and through our friendship and through our tenacity, would you teach us to love like you loved us. Lord, we are not Christians because we believe some doctrine 
We're Christians because we've been loved by you. That's what we all have in common. You've loved the unlovable in us. Would you help us please to regain that power and give us a character that loves the world even under pressure, that loves each other, that loves foreigners, that loves our wives and our husbands and our children, that just is marked by this incredible agape mindset, attitude, and action. Would you do that in us, please? Thank you. We're following you. You are doing that in us, actually, and we're following you. In Jesus' name, amen.